Good morning. You know, this past football season was a special one for the Iowa Hawkeyes, not because they had a particularly successful football season, but because it was the season that the University of Iowa Children's Hospital opened its doors. This hospital was designed so that the 12th floor would act as sort of a press box, would have a viewing area closed in where patients and their parents could actually sit up to the window and watch the football game. One university student had an idea. She thought maybe at the end of the first quarter of every home game, all the fans could turn and wave to the patients who are watching from the 12th floor. And it caught on. It became a tradition this football season and will continue as a tradition every football season thereafter. So these patients and their parents who are searching for hope and for inspiration have thousands of fans who turn to them and just give a simple wave. And one of the nurses said this, said it seemed like such a simple little thing, it's just a wave, but it meant so much to the kids and families that so many people were thinking of them. In that moment, they forgot about the game, and you saw such a close connection for the kids with something outside the hospital. To see that was really awesome. You know, kindness is so simple. And yet it's so profound. Like throwing a rock into uh, the water, it causes ripples. And one act of kindness can cause a ripple effect. It can cause collateral hope and inspiration. Just the other day, I was in line in the drive-thru at McDonald's. Sitting there waiting to get up to the window where I could pay the cashier. And I get there, and the nice lady that's running the cash register says, you're good. It's been taken care of. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, somebody paid for your order. Just pay it forward. And, you know, I thought about that the rest of the day. I thought about how nice it was that someone would do that for me. And then I also thought about looking for opportunities where I can do that for someone else. Because that's what kindness does. Kindness takes the focus off of yourself and on to other people. You know, I, I think we, we have certain things come to mind when we think of kindness. 
I don't know what it is for you. When I think of kindness, I think of, you know, a grandma pulling a, a, a sheet of, of fresh, hot, baked chocolate chip cookies from the oven while she smiles from ear to ear. Or maybe you think of someone holding the door open for somebody so that they can come in. Maybe kindness for you is the nice, sweet lady at the cash register of 7-Eleven who tells you to have a, have a, have a blessed day and, and says, don't, don't worry about the two pennies. You know, maybe that's kindness to you, and kindness is all of those things. But what we're going to talk about this morning goes a lot deeper than those things. Sometimes when we think of kindness, we might think of people. Maybe you think of uh, Mr. Rogers. Some of you probably remember who Mr. Rogers is, had a very successful children's program on PBS for, for several years. Did you know that just before his death, someone stole his car? Right out from in front of where he lived, it was parked on the street, and somebody stole his car, and the media outlets got a hold of it. The local news media ran a story about how someone stole Mr. Rogers' car. And within 48 hours, it was returned. Because someone saw the news report, and the thief got wind of it. He saw the news report. And he returned the car and he left a note saying, if I'd known it was yours, I never would have taken it. You know, <laughs> true story. And we just never know the influence that we might have on someone. And of course, we understand the influence that someone can have on us. And if we're going to do as Paul instructed us to do in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, which is to imitate God, then we're going to have to do what he said in Ephesians 4 and verse 32, where he wrote, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And I want you to notice a familiar phrase that Paul uses over and over again in his epistles, and that is the phrase, one another. One another. We see it over and over again. That phrase is crucial to our understanding of kindness. There are acts of kindness that on the surface seem polite and nice, but the kindness that we're talking about this morning goes much deeper. It's not just holding the door for someone or carrying something heavy for a little old lady. It's that, but it's so much more than that. Kindness begins with your responsibility to one another. I don't have to tell you that we live in a dog-eat-dog world. If I could describe our society in one word, I would say it's competitive. We live in a competition-based society. Everyone is competing, whether it's at work or at school. We're competing for first place in line. We're competing for the best spot at the grocery store, parking lot, whatever it may be. We're all in competition with one another. And when we're always competing with one another, it breeds selfishness. And kindness is not cultivated. Because we are such a competitive society, because we're always competing for first place, some things get perverted and distorted. And we see things like anger and bitterness and hatred and rage. These are the byproducts of a competitive society. I mean, how else do you explain road rage? How else do you explain people getting trampled on Black Friday at Walmart? Because in a competition-based society, things like anger and clamor and, and hatred and rage are the byproducts. Competition breeds selfishness. And that's not to say that there are, are not people in our culture who can compete and walk away as friends. But by and large, 
we see the ugliness of competition daily in our society. I mean, if you ever want to see this in action, if you ever want to see a small, uh, maybe, illustration of this, just go to a peewee basketball game. Go to a Little League baseball game. The kids seem to be having fun, but the parents, anything but. They're fighting, they're complaining, they're yelling at the ref. It's sad how much competition breeds selfishness and anger and wrath in our culture. Over and over again, we see it. And we make excuses for it, don't we? I mean, we expect our coaches and our athletes to be this way. If they don't get excited, if they don't get upset to the point that they're, they're yelling at the ref, we question their character. We question their will to win. If an athlete doesn't get upset at a bad call, we question their will to win. And then we get upset at the referee. And we accuse him of being the dumbest person on the planet. Or, or he's just out to get our team. He doesn't like our team. He's a homer. And we hear that phrase that's oft recited at basketball or, or football games. Call it both ways, ref. It's a competition-based society that breeds these kind of things. And, and we say things like, well, you know, that athlete, they're just passionate. That coach, you know, he's, he's just competitive. We make excuses for it. We justify it. We rationalize it. I can remember as a coach, if I wasn't boisterous enough, or if I didn't act out enough on the sideline, the fans would ask me later, why didn't you do something? Why, why didn't you kick a chair or throw something? Because they expect that from their coach. And they question your character if you don't do those things. And so when you look at things in our society like surviving the rat race or climbing the corporate ladder of success or keeping up with the Joneses, so many things breed stress and anxiety and, and, and discontentment. And it's the result of living in a competition-based society. And you know what? These kind of things are killing kindness. Because it's extremely difficult to cultivate kindness in a culture that's so competitive and that is full of anger and rudeness and violence. Which is why, under the heading of the new life, Paul writes these words in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 26. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. All the negatives that Paul is addressing here are the byproduct of a selfish, competitive-based society. Anger and bitterness and thievery and corrupting talk and slander and malice, these all stem from trying to beat everyone else. And Paul says, put it away. Put it away because that's not who you are. You used to be that, but that's not you any longer. You're a new creature in Christ. And being a new creature in Christ means that you are no longer looking out for number one. Remember his words in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's the core of Christianity, is dying to yourself. That it's no longer about you. That it's not about looking out for number one. Kindness says what you need is more important than what I need. Doesn't matter if you deserve it. It's still more important. You know, I've, I've talked to some of you about this before, and I will, uh, I will admit my sin this morning in front of everybody because it happened to me the other day, driving to Dallas last Sunday night, speaking in, uh, in Plano and driving down the interstate. They're working on the interstate, and there's a sign that says, lane closed ahead, merge left. So I get over in the left lane. There's another sign. Right lane ends, 1,000 feet, merge left, and there's an arrow blinking, pointing for people to merge. So I'm in the left lane, and, and inevitably, traffic slows down to a crawl, maybe even a stop. And there are these people whizzing by me in the right lane that are going full speed all the way to the front where they stop and put on their blinker expecting someone to let them in. And you know what I do? I sit there and say, tough luck. I'm not letting you in. You saw the sign like everybody else did. There ain't no way I'm letting you in. You can just sit up here with your blinker on and stew over the decision that you made, right? You saw the sign like everybody else did. And I got to admit, I get pretty angry about it. But then I think about that, and I think about how it applies to our, our sermon this morning, and I think about that illustration, I think about my life, I think about your life, and I think to myself, isn't that what God did for me? Didn't He let me in? I didn't deserve it. I mean, I saw the sign. He put road signs up for me to warn me, and I ignored them and just kept on flying by. And then I get to the end, and all of a sudden I want Him to let me in. I've got my blinker on. Please, God, let me in. And you know what he does? Come on over. Now, I think it's important for us to realize where we stand in relationship to God and how that should affect the way that we treat other people. Thankfully, God doesn't treat me the way I treat other people. Think about how kind God has been to you. What do you have in life that you truly deserve or that you have truly earned? How much do you owe God? And if your answer to that question isn't anything or nothing and everything, then you need to shift your thinking about God. If you can't say that I have nothing without God, if you can't say that I, go, oh, I owe God everything, if you can't say that, then you need to rethink your relationship. God, in his unlimited kindness, has let you in. Despite your sinfulness, despite your defiance, and despite your rebellion, God has shown you kindness when you least deserved it. And we need to take a lesson from our Lord and be kind to those who are not kind, kind to those that maybe we don't like all that much, even kind to those that we would rather beat with a stick. Because we understand where we've come from. And we understand how kind God has been to us. 
you have been formed by the cross. And therefore, you let people merge instead of purposely keeping them out. Remember a few months ago when we talked about discipleship? And we talked about the true meaning of the word disciple. We throw that word around a lot and we say that we are disciples of Jesus. But do we truly know what a disciple is? A disciple is a learner. That's what disciple means. It means learner. Disciple denotes one who follows another's teaching. But not only is a disciple a learner, he or she is also an adherent. In ancient times, a disciple was referred to as an imitator of his teacher. And that was the goal of discipleship. If you were a disciple of some teacher, your goal was to be exactly like that teacher, which spurs the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. So to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means that everything we do in life, everything that we are, is trying to shape and form ourselves to be like him. We are striving to be like our teacher. And in striving to be like our teacher, I think a good question that we should always be asking in any situation we find ourselves in that's difficult, we say, well, how would Jesus handle this? You know, a few years ago, we had these bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Ask yourself in a certain situation, any situation, how would Jesus handle that? And we do that with other people in our life. We all have people that that we knew and loved, maybe it was a mentor, a friend, or a family member that has passed on, and we find ourselves in certain situations and we say, I wonder how so-and-so would have handled that. We think about how they would have handled it, and we, we try to make a decision based on that. To be a disciple, we ask the question, how would Jesus handle this? Because the, the temptation is always to handle it in our way. And if you haven't noticed, our way is usually the wrong way. And so we look at, how would Jesus handle this? What would he do in this situation? But in order to answer that question effectively, we have to know who Jesus is. Not about him, we have to know him, right? Which is what Paul is getting at as he talks through Ephesians chapter 4. Look closely at verse 20 and following. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Notice that first sentence. But that's not the way you learned Christ. You've studied him. You know all about him. You know what he would do. You know how he would have acted in certain situations. And you know that he would be telling you the same thing that I'm telling you. Then in verse 21, Paul points out that when you learn Jesus, you learn truth. In verse 22, you see that based on learning Jesus and knowing the truth, there are things that you put off. Namely, you put off that old self. You put off your former conduct because you have put on Christ. Remember, to be a disciple is to be like your teacher. You can't be like Jesus and be your old self. Your old self led to anger and clamor and slander and malice and thievery, all those things that lead to corruption. And Paul says, that's not who you are anymore. That's why the old saying that people throw around, well, just be yourself, that's a bunch of bunk. Don't be yourself. Yourself stinks. Be something better. Be the new creature you're supposed to be in Christ. 
The worst thing you can do many times is be yourself. Be something better. Be like Jesus. Be like your teacher. Paul goes on to say that we were created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So we become like our teacher because we're created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. But here's something else. The Holy Spirit plays a part in all of this as well. I want you to notice Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Kindness comes from a divine source. If you want to know about kindness, you've got to know the divine. Kindness is a reflection of God, and it is a fruit of the Spirit. Paul says so right here. It is what is produced when the Spirit resides in us. It's not simply something we do. It's not an obligation that we follow or a command that we follow. It's an attribute of our character. It becomes so intricately woven within the fiber of our character that it becomes natural. It is one who imitates Jesus and reflects God, and who is led by the Spirit, who shows kindness. Kindness is a manifestation of love. Paul even says so in his beautiful description of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, love is kind, right? So kindness is a manifestation of love. Kindness is love in action. It's actively caring for other people in big ways and small ways, even when you don't have to, when you're not being paid to do it, when you're not being prompted to do it. No one's holding anything over your head. You just do it because you have a heart that has been conditioned to place people as a priority. We're not doing it just to make the world a better place. We're not doing it just to make ourselves feel good. We're not doing it because the other person will be indebted to us if we do it. We're doing it because it's an example of the character of Christ because kindness comes to one whose heart is given to God first and foremost. You might remember that several years ago in this country, there was a call for people to practice random acts of kindness. And the idea was that if we would all just practice these random acts of kindness, that it would take the world by storm and the world would be a kinder, gentler place. And certainly that might be a good thing, but we're not talking about random acts of kindness when we're talking about kindness that is God-grown. Because being random is not what God is calling us to do. You can perform random acts of kindness and never really get involved. Never really have a relationship with God or Jesus or, or anyone else for that matter. You just do it and you go on your way and feel good about yourself. But kindness isn't self-centered. It's not self-focused. It's not because you're trying to get something out of it. It will benefit you, but that's not the reason you do it. God-grown kindness says that I am intentional about kindness, not random. That I'm doing it because I have a heart that is given to God. You are kindness. It's not just something you do. You are kindness. You're not random about kindness. You are kindness. It's not something that is an obligation. It's who you are. And it flows naturally from a heart that is given to God and someone who is led by the Spirit of God. Look with me at Ephesians 4.32 again. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I've highlighted tender-hearted here because tender-hearted means compassionate. It refers to pity and sympathy. 
keep in mind that this is a one another passage, like we talked about a while ago, Paul mentions one another many, many times in his epistles. So when you see that word another, you have a natural interest in them because you've been shaped by Jesus. You've been shaped by God. You are a reflection of God and you are led by the Spirit. You reach out to them. You have a vested interest in others. You, you hurt because they hurt. You really care about what is absent in their life. You, you know the pain, or at least you try to know the pain that they're experiencing. You genuinely care about what they're going through. You know what we call that? We, we might call that unusual kindness. You see that referred to in Acts chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. It reads, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. If you understand what's going on here, Paul and those who were traveling with him is shipwrecked. It was late October, early November, and it was cold. And it was not unusual at all to be shipwrecked and to become the victim of land pirates. Quite often, these pirates would sweep in and they would take everything you had and they would either take you into slavery or kill you. And so Paul's concerned. He's tired, he's worn out, he may even be hurt, and he's scared. And so you can imagine how pleasantly surprised he is when the people there, the native people, show him hospitality. They got involved. They didn't have to. They didn't have to do anything. They weren't obligated to do anything. But they were tender-hearted. And that was unusual. Your version may say extraordinary, same thing. But it was certainly welcome. Because the type of kindness that Christians display in the world can be dubbed as unusual. When you consider how our world operates. When you consider that we live in a competition-based society where everyone is looking out for number one, where kindness is not typically cultivated, it's unusual for someone to show that type of kindness, to not just hold the door for someone, but to actually get involved in your life, to nurse you back to health, to give you the things that you need, to get back on your feet, to truly dig in and get involved in your life. We should be giving the world a taste of this unusual kindness because in doing so, we're giving the world a taste of Jesus. And it's so simple, yet so profound. How easy, how simple is it to be kind? It's not difficult, and no one sitting here this morning has an excuse not to. None of us can say, well, I, I'm just not very kind. Oh, yeah, you may not be, but you can be. There is no excuse and no reason to not be kind. We can all be kind. You ever been approached by a person in need and they come up to you and they start sharing their story and what they're in need of and you think to yourself, I don't have time for this. I, I really don't want to get involved. This sounds like too much stuff to lay on me. There's too many layers here. I just don't want to get involved. I was at the gas station the other day and this gentleman pulls up rolls down his window. He says, sir, can you help me? I said, what can I do? 
He says, well, I was wondering if you had a little bit of money that I could have because my wife has a blood uh, pressure machine that needs a new battery and several other things. And he said, I just wondered if I could have a little bit of cash. And I said, I'm sorry, I, I don't keep cash. And I really don't. I mean, that was true. I usually just have a card. I don't have cash. And he said, well, would you mind following me to Walgreens and then coming in and purchasing the battery and a few other things for me? I said, I don't think I want to do that. And I, I'm a little ashamed that I say that when I'm preaching a sermon on kindness. And you may be sitting there this morning going, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have done that either. I mean, you never know what could happen, right? Let me tell you, I wasn't concerned about my safety. My concern was it sounded like a lot of work. It seemed like a lot of trouble. And I don't know how much battery is for a blood pressure machine. Let me present it this way, a little better illustration. In 2006, we were in El Salvador on a mission trip. And there was a lady there by the name of Maria. And Maria had five children that she was forced to raise on her own because her husband had died of a kidney infection, something that could be cured here in the United States very easily with antibiotics he died from. Raising five children all under the age of 10. And people in this village of El Salvador are not very wealthy. In fact, they live in abject poverty. But we have a program through the church in Cassville, Missouri, where I was at, and the church in Monette, Missouri. We had this program where anyone in the church could adopt a child. So we would, we would kind of put them in touch with a family that had children, and they would send $25 a month to support that child. And that money would go to health care, it would go toward uh, school supplies, clothing, food, those kind of basics. Maria had three of her five children on this program, and it raised her monthly income to 90 bucks. That tells you how poor she was without the program. And so I sat down to talk with Maria about the Bible, although she did most of the talking. She knew exactly what it meant to be a New Testament Christian in the New Testament church. And while we were there, we were able to baptize her, and as far as I know, still a faithful member of the church there in La Palma, El Salvador. But you know what brought her to the table? Kindness. Simple kindness. $25 a month from three different individuals. I mean, that, that was basically it. Even before the money, people came to her from the church and showed a vested interest in her. They knew her story. They knew that she had lost her husband and that she had five children she was trying to raise on her own. And none of those people did anything elaborate, but give her time and attention, gave her some supplies to, to feed her children and to, to get her on her feet. But that's all it was. Simple kindness made all the difference, not only to her physically, but you think about where she is now spiritually, which is the most important thing, right? All because of simple kindness. That simple and basic act had a profound effect on her life. And our heart should be the most tender towards those who are outside of Christ. That's what bothers me about not helping that gentleman. I can come up with all sorts of excuses. Well, I don't know how much it would have cost. I don't know. I mean, 
maybe I was in danger. Maybe my safety would have been compromised. Uh, he, he probably would never have come to church anyway. What if he did? What if he did become a child of God? You know, I think about being tenderhearted, and I, I have to admit that a lot of times my heart is pretty callous towards certain things, maybe even towards certain individuals. Something that I'm working on. If we are shaped by God, if we are a reflection of Jesus, and if we are led by the Spirit, we should be a people who naturally produce kindness. But you don't get there without knowing who God is, who Jesus is, the Holy Spirit is. You must know them before you can have a relationship with them and thus be changed by them. I'll close with this. Did you, did you know that when Christians first came on the scene in the first century, many people were confused by who they, who they were. Um, because they were new, because people didn't really know what to call them or what they were called, a lot of times they were called Christos instead of Christos. There's just one letter difference there. Christos is the word for Christ in the Greek language. And in the Greco-Roman world, the language can be kind of like ours. You know, sometimes words can sound similar depending on the accent you use and depending on how you say it. Sometimes it can be confused. And so a lot of times, Christos were mistakenly called Christos. And Christos is the word for kindness or the kind ones. And so instead of being called Christians or Christos, a lot of times they were called Christos or the kind ones. But what if it wasn't a, mis a case of mistaken identity? I mean, certainly that's not a bad moniker, is it? What if we were known as the kind ones? Wouldn't that be a good moniker for us? You know, those people at Oldham Lane, they're Christians, but they are the kind ones. It's like the person that came up to me not long ago and said, hey, so you preach at Oldham Lane Church. Aren't they the church that does? And I thought, oh, no, here we go. But it came out, aren't they the church that tries to help people? Well, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope that's who we are. Because, you know, the church of Christ is known as a lot of things. We're known as those people who don't use instruments. We're known as those people who, you know, we, we like to consider ourselves, those people who know the truth. We're, we're those people who... who uh, who know a lot of different things about the Bible. And, you know, we, we're those people who think they're the only ones going to heaven, right? We, we're, we're known for a lot of things. And maybe we can't change everybody's perception on the outside. But here's what we can do, all of us. We can show kindness. Every single one of us. We can be kind. And maybe that kindness is a springboard to helping people spiritually. What if we were known as the kind ones? What if we were spirit-led, God-reflecting, and Jesus-imitating? What if? If you have a need this morning that we can help you with, if you're not a child of God and you're ready to study the Bible, or maybe you've been studying the Bible and you're ready to put on Christ in baptism and begin a daily walk with God, then certainly we want to we take care of that this morning. Maybe you need encouragement. Maybe you need the prayers and support of this family. We want to help you. We want to be that church that helps others 
that is kind. If you have a need this morning, come as we stand and as we sing.